You know, also, I'm, I'm sure you have already heard about it today, but if you get out this little card, I sure hope you don't waste it and just throw it away or say, well, it was just one of the things that was in the bulletin today because it tells you everything we're going to be doing for Easter. It's got it on one little page. You could share this with a friend or a family member who needs the Lord and to bring them here. They're going to hear about Jesus on Easter. You know that for sure. And there's also celebrations on Thursday, Monday, Thursday, on Friday, uh, both at noon in, uh, on our campus in San Juan, 7 p.m. here. Then on the Saturday, the extravaganza, the last one we'll do on this campus for a little while, and then Easter Fair down in San Juan, and then on Easter as well. So that's just two weeks away, and so bring somebody with you. Be inviting them now. Let's have as many people coming with us as we can to hear about Jesus. Listen, also, I mentioned some of this last week, but... Um, we are aiming at a date of starting all of our worship services in San Juan in August, August 7th. And, uh, you know, I suppose the date could slip. I suppose Jesus could return before that, too. But otherwise, you know, that's what we're going to be aiming at. We're doing exciting things like talking with contract lawyers and having the architect get working and everybody get every little detail possible ready. So I'm wanting to help you get ready as well. Let's get ready spiritually and emotionally and, and mentally. And part of what I don't know how to do but I want to do right, is how do we say thank you to the Lord and goodbye to the buildings that we've enjoyed here that have been tools that are going to be removed as we take our steps forward. And uh, so some people have had some ideas. I mentioned some of this last week, but if you have ideas of ways we can appropriately say, God, you have blessed us over and over, and we're taking steps forward, which means letting go of some things that we have known and have loved and have enjoyed so that we can step forward together Oh, well, then I'm, I would like to have your suggestions. So you could write them on the blue card, or if you had a, a, a question as far as what's happening and how the whole process, if you would put it on a little card and pop it in at the back or something, we want to get as many questions answered as we can so that everybody knows. Because we've, ex- we've got some exciting things uh, that are happening, not just on the campus, but God is working through us of, of wanting to use us to touch this world and to see people come to Christ and to be baptized and to grow up in Him and to live as believers in this world. We certainly know from watching the whole political process that we need people who really know and love the Lord to be actively engaged and uh, to say, how do we be that salt and light in this world that Jesus talked about? Well, we've been walking with Jesus, tracing his life and ministry on earth as, as he taught God's thoughts, God's word, uh, God's way. But Jesus had come for a larger, more significant task even than that. Now, the, the children of God had been taken captive and by sin and by Satan, and, and the price for the ransom had been set. It was the blood of an innocent man had to be shed. And Jesus came into the world to be that ransom, to be that man, to be the, the, the atonement for your sin and mine. And he was to offer his life to pay for the sin so that God's children could be set free. Well, it's kind of a curious twist. It shows how only God can work things out like this. But at the same time, Jesus' own people, the Jewish people, turned on him. They wanted him put to death because he told them the truth, that he was God come in human flesh. And they convinced the Roman Gentiles uh, to, uh, to put him to death because they asked him, are you a king? And he couldn't say no because he is. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And the devil, who doesn't know everything, 
wanted Jesus dead because he thought that would be a way of breaking God's heart and lashing out at God, who's Satan's enemy. And, and all of them didn't know it, but they were all working together to fulfill the plan that God had from before the foundation of the world. God's plan to provide Jesus as the ransom so that your debt has been paid. You're free. And so am I. So here in this series, we're in John 19, verse 17. Back in chapter 12, he had said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You know, we've gotten into the story where Jesus has placed himself in the city of Jerusalem during a feast of the Passover, which feast of Passover was this own little drama all of its own uh, to reenact when the blood of an innocent lamb was used to save the lives of Jewish people. And Jesus had been called by John the, the uh, a prophet, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was that sacrificial lamb. His blood was what covered you and me. And so when the angel of death came through in Egypt, if he saw the blood of people who heard God's word and believed and obeyed him and did what he said, then he would pass over them. If not, they paid the price themselves. So Jesus took all of his disciples, went to the city of Jerusalem, and there he had the Passover feast with them. And then they went out to a grove of olive trees called the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and basically wait for Jesus to be arrested. God's plan worked. It always does in the end. So even when things seem dark and dismal and they're not working right and you don't know the answer, the best course of action is always just align yourself with God. Listen to Jesus. Ask God in prayer, God, what would you have for me? And follow him one day at a time. And just pray like Jesus did in the song that, the, uh, that our choir sang of not my will but yours be done. Put God first in your life because his plan always works out in the end to bring God glory and to have his will accomplished. Jesus was arrested. He was abused. He was put through the rigors of six different trials in the middle of the night, which made all of them illegal. Three of those were before the governor, Pontius Pilate, who stated over and over, this man is not guilty. He should not be put to death. He's innocent. I find no fault in him. There is no reason to put him to death. Seven times, Pilate proclaimed, Jesus is innocent. But he had Jesus whipped, hoping that that would satisfy the crowd, would get enough sympathy that uh, the Jewish leaders would have to back up and uh, let him go free. But instead, the Jewish leaders said, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. They are threatening to tell on Pilate. So even though Pilate knows Jesus is innocent and has said so over and over, when his own job, when his own life, when his, uh, his loyalty is challenged, he gives the order to have Jesus, this innocent man, put to death rather than do the right thing himself and probably lose his job and maybe his life. We pick up the story in John 19, verse 17, just after Pilate has commanded them to take Jesus and crucify him. It says, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. In our system of, of justice in America, when a person is uh, going to be put to death for crimes they have committed, they generally die in prison, in private, in a manner that is quick and considered humane. Justice is carried out, but the ghastly, shocking, ugly, awful details, that side of punishment and suffering is kept out of view of most people. 
The Romans didn't think like us. They thought just the opposite on this. They said if somebody has been disloyal, then humiliate them as much as possible. Put them on display for everybody. Let everybody see how awful it is. Crime does not pay. Don't mess with Rome. So after being sentenced to death by crucifixion, the condemned person would have a sign or a placard placed around their neck stating their name and the crime that they had committed. And it was hung around their neck, and they would be forced to carry the cross to the place of crucifixion. Well, at least the horizontal beam of the cross. The vertical beam would already be there. The horizontal beam probably weighed 100 pounds uh, by itself. It would be forced onto the person who's going to be crucified. They're paraded through the city the longest route possible so as many people as possible can see that crime doesn't pay. Jesus is led or dragged by the Roman soldiers. Remember, he's been whipped 39 times by Pilate in an effort to get the crowd to have compassion on Jesus. He's been slugged in the face over and over and over by the Roman soldiers taunting him, saying, who hit you? He's had a, a crown of thorns smashed down on his head. He's already severely weakened. He's been bleeding. The procession moves uh, from Pilate's judgment seat to a place outside the city called the Place of the Skull. I know we sing songs. We have some in our hymn book about a hill called Mount Calvary. There's nothing in any of the Gospels or the Scripture that talks about there being a hill. It talks about it being outside the city wall. The exact location isn't determined. There was a man in the 1800s named Gordon who was looking around for the place of Jesus' uh, crucifixion, and he saw a side of a mountain that looked like a skull because of uh, digging that had been done for graves. And so he said, well, that must be the place, and it's called Gordon's Calvary. It's just outside the wall of Jerusalem. Part of the challenge is some of the wall on that side is buried from debris from the centuries about uh, 75 feet deep. And so uh, it's not known exactly where the wall is, what's inside the city and outside the city. I think the crucifixion happened along the main road going into the city of Jerusalem so that all the uh, pilgrims coming in would be able to see this happen and would hear crime doesn't pay. And there's a section there where there was a quarry, a rock quarry, we had to get all those big rocks for the city walls from somewhere, and some of them are so big, you didn't haul them very far. And, uh, but there's places where you can see quarries even to this day in Jerusalem where they would quarry, cut out a, a stone that was solid, and right next to it was some rotten rock or cracked or um, softer. And so you could dig down and have a, a pothole there where you could uh, jam the cross into it and then hang your uh, prisoner on the cross. Psalm 118.22, which was written by David a thousand years before Jesus was born, says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So if this little picture of the stone and uh, being um, crucified in a quarry in the rock that was rejected, there's just kind of a, a picture there. It's picked up not by John, but by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All quote this scripture, put it in the mouth of Jesus right after the triumphal entry. When he goes up to the temple area, he's arguing with the religious leaders one more time. And Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Peter and John quote this when they are arrested by the Jewish council right after Jesus' resurrection, and uh, they think their lives are in danger, and they said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. He's become the cornerstone. 
Peter picks it up in 1 Peter 2.7, and he says, For those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, sometimes it's also called the capstone, which when you build an arch, the capstone is the one that you put in the middle. You pull that out, everything falls apart. If you don't have a foundation, sooner or later your house falls apart because it doesn't have a foundation. Without Jesus Christ, your and my faith as Christians falls apart. It doesn't work. It won't help. It would give us no hope. Without Christ, without his sacrifice, we are of all people most miserable, the Bible says. So the Roman soldiers head Jesus toward the place of crucifixion, carrying his own cross. And um, it's a heavy load. And with the beating and loss of blood he's endured, they can see Jesus is not going to be able to survive long enough to get this cross beam all the way to the place of crucifixion and be crucified on. He might die before that. So they grab somebody from the crowd, which John doesn't tell us, but his name is Simon of Cyrene, and he's forced to carry the load, not out of pity. They want to be sure to keep him alive so they can torture him with death on the cross. They want Jesus to live long enough to be able to suffer even more. In Mark 5, 41, it says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, I think the fact that Alexander and Rufus are named here indicate that this little family, we don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing, okay, that this little family became known later in the church, that this experience of coming into the city of Jerusalem on a pilgrimage, of watching dad suddenly be singled out from the crowd by the Roman soldiers to do the dirty work, and then wondering, oh my goodness, is dad going to die too? of getting to the place of crucifixion, of staying to watch with horror the crucifixion of an innocent man. All that made a profound impact on this family, and maybe they became believers. I'm just guessing. We'll probably have to wait till we get to heaven because, you know, there are probably lots of guys named Alexander, but Rufus, there might just be one. You know what I'm saying? I mean, why would you name a kid Rufus unless it's, you saw him and had an instant dislike for him? I'm not sure. Um, but... We will be able to, if they are in heaven, we will be able to find out and to learn their story. It'll be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? Verse 18 says, There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. When there was Jesus was praying in the garden, a band of about 600 men showed up and they rounded up everybody in the garden, which was all the disciples. And so all of them are being held in the grasp and control of this band. And they, Jesus said, Who are you looking for? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I'm he. Let these others go. And as soon as they let the other disciples go, following Jesus' command, the other disciples ran and fled and hid, except for John and Peter, who followed Jesus to the place of his trial, which was at the high priest's compound or home. And they got inside, and they're standing by the fire, remember? And then Peter's asked, hey, weren't you one of them? And he said, no, no, no. And he swore up and down, and he didn't know Jesus. And then the rooster crowed, and Jesus looked right at him. And then it says, he went out, and he wept bitterly. Now there's only John left. John was the only disciple that saw Jesus nailed to the cross. He was the only eyewitness from the disciples' group. The other friends of Jesus that at the foot of the cross were some of the women who had supported his ministry, and among them was Jesus' mother, Mary, bravely standing at the foot of the cross of her son. And from the cross, Jesus gave his mother and the responsibility for caring for her to John, who took her into his own home. Picture Jesus being crucified. Crucifixion has a long history. 
The Romans didn't invent it, but they perfected it. It came from the Phoenicians, and the cross was a means of death that satisfied their belief in the God of the earth, Ormuth. Defile the earth if a criminal dies on it, so you have the person die above the earth. And it's interesting, but Jesus had said, recorded in John 12, I, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So, to the Romans, the cross became an expertly used instrument of torture and punishment and crowd control. You cross the Romans and you'll pay for it. Now, in our person, you know, the, the Romans thought differently about this than we did, like I said. So they're trying to say crime doesn't pay and use cross, a cross to make a person suffer as much as possible so nobody would ever want to be crucified. To the Jewish people, crucifixion was the most disgusting form of death. In fact, God had inspired Moses in about the year 1500 B.C. to write into the law in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. He said this, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Now, God knew that Jesus would be cursed for all of us when he wrote this. 1,500 years before Jesus was born. It's not an accident. God cursed his own son so that you and I could be blessed. And the moment on the cross where it broke Jesus' heart was when God turned away from him because of sin, and Jesus cried out, as recorded in Matthew and Mark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the Christian, the cross is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. It's, we see God's love there. It's, it's the thing that he paid the whole price for us. So we wear crosses. We have them on our buildings. We have them on our Bibles. We put them in our homes. They're to remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus, of his love for us, of coming to an intersection and having to decide which way to go. So two others were crucified there with Jesus, one on each side. But John didn't focus on them. Luke tells us that one of them said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus from the cross said to that man, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now leave the verse up there for a minute. They didn't have commas like we do. So look at this verse. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Or should the comma be, truly I say to you, I say to you today, you will be. In other words, the today can go both ways. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Or truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Either one could be correct. And Jesus is saying to this person who never said, Dear Jesus, please come into my heart. Please forgive me of my sin. He never prayed the sinner's prayer the way we would think of the sinner's prayer. He was never baptized. There wasn't time by the time he figured it out. All he said is, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And God could see into his heart and see that he was repented and he needed the blood of Jesus and he was the first one to receive that blessing. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's look at what happens when a person is nailed to a cross. The executioner lay the cross beam behind the victim and then jerked the victim to the ground Often the victim would be fighting back, kicking, scratching, clawing, trying to escape or to inflict injury on the soldiers as much as possible. It's not in the record, but none of that would be consistent with Jesus, who's giving up his life voluntarily. 
When the victim fell, the beam would be fitted under the back of his neck, and uh, the four soldiers would, of course, grab him and hold him down, and the executioner had a leather apron with pockets that had five-inch nails in it. Uh, they're square, and he would probably grab two of them, put them between his teeth, and then use his knee to hold, uh, pin the person's arm on one of the beams of the cross and uh, by the elbow, and then he would drive the first nail into uh, right below the hand into the wrist between the two bones. If you put it right in the hand where the artists put it, it would tear out. But between the two bones is a nerve as well. And if you got alongside that nerve, it could cause excruciating pain and the nail would be able to hold the person's body weight. Then he would do the other arm the same way. Then the four soldiers would grab the beam and the person and set, the, set it up on top of the spike of the, of the uh, vertical beam. And uh, then he would also tack the sign up above the person's head uh, that he had been wearing around his neck that listed the crime. And then he would kneel before the cross and use one nail to nail both feet, right foot over the left, bend it up and nail it together in such a way that it would cause great agony. The Romans... Uh, kind of prided itself on making an art of positioning the feet so that you would experience the greatest amount of pain. And Jesus would have instantly been aware of two sources of pain. His arms and shoulders would begin to cramp severely, and his pectoral muscles would constrict, which would cause it, make it harder and harder for him to breathe out. So he would have to push himself up on his feet that have a nail in it, excruciating. It wasn't, you know, the cross wasn't a comfortable place. Up and down, up and down, slumping back down on his extended arms and then not able to exhale. So up he would go and then back down and it would get harder and harder. What took Jesus to the cross? It was voluntary for him, you know. It was his love for you and for me. It was our need that we had no way to satisfy on our own. He didn't have to go there. Now, the guy who wrote this for us, John, is an eyewitness. Jesus was his very best friend. And years later, he sits down to write the story. How would John have felt? I would think he would have felt anger toward the injustice, but he has figured out that God was in control. The Bible says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, that God used the darkness of man's heart to show the greatest light to mankind. And that's why Jesus was put on the cross. All of heaven is interested in the cross. All of hell was terrified by it. It's just us mere mortals who largely ignore it. To our own peril. Don't miss the power and the love of the cross. John focuses on one thing. He doesn't focus on the nails or the blood of Jesus or the suffering as much. He focused on the sign that Pilate put above his head. It says, verse 20 and 19, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the, people of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The sign that Pilate wrote and nailed on the cross above Jesus' head was the conventional announcement of the offense the victim has committed. It's written in three languages, in Aramaic, in Latin, and Greek. They want everybody to know. Now, it's written in Aramaic for the locals, and it's written in Latin for the officials, and it's written in Greek because that was the most common language of the world around the Mediterranean, and it's not written in the academic Greek. It's written in the street Greek that everybody spoke because God wanted everybody to have his good news in reach. 
where they could hear and know God's word. This sign is impressive to John because it fits with the message of his whole book. John ends his book in chapter 20 by saying, Jesus did a lot of other things that aren't written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the whole question that John is trying to answer is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's the most important question. It'll determine where you spend eternity. And Pilate, who doesn't even believe in Jesus, writes a sign that shows who Jesus really is. I mean, don't miss it. Pilate wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And we learn from the sign three things about Jesus. Number one, no circumstances can diminish the power of who Jesus is. Try to kill him, and the sign still says he's the king. The world can clearly see who Jesus is. It's written in three languages because God wants everybody to know. And people will try, but they'll always fail to change the truth about who Jesus is. There were spin doctors even then. They didn't save him for 2016 for a, for a, a political year. Um, I mean, these people wanted to change the sign. They wanted to twist the truth, but they couldn't. And Pilate wrote the sign, and he told the truth. He basically said, get off me. What I have written, I have written. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but he threw him under the bust to save his own life. I think he wrote King of the Jews as another way to scorn the Jewish leaders, to basically say, you are a people who are owned by somebody else. You don't even have your own king. And he told them, I'm leaving it the way I said it. And he had told the truth. In the next verse, it says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothing dividing it into four shares, one for each of them with his undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garment among them and cast lots for my clothing. So that's what the soldiers did. Where does that verse come from? Anybody know? Psalms. Good guess. Psalm 22, which if you were looking for a psalm that talks about the suffering Savior, it would be Psalm 22 would top the list right before Psalm 23. Psalm 22 starts out and says, and you'll recognize it because Jesus quoted verse 1 right from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And verse 18 says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Crucifixion had not even been thought up yet, and this whole psalm is talking about the verse after verse. You go, ooh, that's, that's talking about Jesus. And God had this in there to say, here, on the day that the, the, the sacrifice is being made, there's going to be some soldiers tossing the dice to see who gets what piece of clothing. Now, Jesus basically wore a, a traditional outfit of that day, five items, a turban or something on his head, an outer robe, some kind of belt or sash, he had his sandals, and then this undergarment, a fairly long tunic woven in one piece, probably looked like a male swimsuit from the 1920s because, you know, styles kind of come and go, come and go, come and go. And um, uh, then so these four soldiers, there's five pieces of clothing, they, probably no money in Jesus' pockets, each gets an item and then they're going to gamble for the last one. And the tunic is awarded at the toss of the dice but it's fulfilling Scripture. Psalm 22 would be worth reading yourself in your preparation for the Passion Week and for Easter coming to see how God is working all the way through Scripture, through Jesus, 
Jesus being crucified was not an accident. It wasn't an oops. It wasn't an afterthought. It didn't just happen one day. It's not a fluke or a mistake. God had you and your need for salvation in mind from before the creation of the world because he loves you. And the cross, even the, even the most common of events, the throwing of a dice becomes a fulfillment of prophecy. Here's Jesus who's been stripped naked, humiliated, beaten up, abused, hung before the world, stripped of every worldly possession, and yet God was in control, reconciling the, himself to the world through Christ. And he let the crucifixion happen for one reason, because he loves you. He loves you. What's your response? You have, to, you have to do something with it. You can't just ignore it and walk away. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. And someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Shall we pray? Dear God, I pray that you will take this and cause our love for you to deepen. Help us to see that you had planned it for so long, that you cared for us so much, that you were willing to pay any price, that you predicted it in your word, all of that coming together because of your love for us. May our hearts grow deeper and wider in our love for you. May we realize that there's no price too high to pay to follow you. We can tell your story. We can share it with others. We can give and serve and pray and know your joy in great measure because you are our Savior and you died for us. Thank you for loving us so much. Amen.